Hello and welcome to Further Reaches. I'm your host, Kaz Tanner, and today I'm going to be speaking with Henny Heldenis, who is an integrated health practitioner. He was the lecturer in a course I took last year called Integrative Medicine, where we learned about the mind-body connection, the placebo effect, the nocebo effect, and how in psychosomatic conditions there can be physical things that manifest as illness in your body that come from your mind. So I'm really excited to share this interview with you. Let's dive in. Henny is an integrated health practitioner, a medical doctor and researcher, and a registered transpersonal coach and trainer. He has an interest in the mind, spirit, soma integration and teaches, writes, experiments and explores this paradigm with clients, colleagues and students. He lives in South Africa in between the vineyards and the mountains with his wife and two daughters. That sounds beautiful. So hi, Henny. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's very good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. So I met Henny. Uh, last year when I was a student in his integrative medicine course, which is run through the Aleph Trust. And I was just fascinated with so many of the things that I learned in your class, Henny. So to start with, I'd love to hear a bit about your story and your journey and how you became interested in medicine and then ultimately in the mind-body-soma connection. So yeah, tell us a bit about that. Um, thank you, Kaz. Yes, well, I qualified as a medical doctor, it feels like ages ago, and I, I suppose in my heart I always had this sort of call to to heal, the instinct to heal. As, as many of my colleagues have, and as many of the healing practitioners in general have. Um, but I've also noticed that somehow, sometimes we, we lose our way a little bit. We start off with this inner calling to heal, and then sometimes it just gets lost in, in all the detail. And that was pretty much my journey. I, I, I qualified as a medical practitioner, and later I specialized as a family practitioner. And I was in, in general practice for, for many, many years. So seeing patients in general practice and, well, you know, feeling I was making a difference. But I must say that towards the end of my general practice career in a conventional medical practice, it was getting frustrating. I always had this sense that there was something deeper, that there was more going on. And I was very much limited both by things like time. I mean, how much can you do in a 15-minute consultation? But also by an understanding. I, I didn't have the words. I, I didn't have the skills to be able to articulate what I was actually feeling that there was so much more going on. So much so that uh, I, was, I was pretty much burnt out. And I, and I left general practice. I went into clinical research which is a, it's a sort of a more sterile environment, isn't it? But in retrospect, that was a necessary part of the journey because it, 
Talk to me about how does one interpret evidence and how are you sensible and responsible about how you portray things and understand things. But there was still this calling. And in the meantime, in the background, I became very interested in the transpersonal psychology paradigm, what that means, what it entails. And there was this sort of natural merging of that learning. And I, I embarked on various learning journeys and did numerous courses, spoke to many people. And there was this natural integration, I suppose, with that and my medical background to end up where I'm sort of now, although, of course, the journey has just begun, in terms of how does one combine all of that sort of holistic transpersonal notions with medicine and with healing and, and what that might entail. Um, and um, it's been a fascinating journey. And as I say, I think it's just begun. I love that. So for our listeners who might not be aware of this term, could you just briefly describe what you mean when you refer to the transpersonal? Yes. The transpersonal is, I suppose, just a fancy way of saying holistic well, that's a little more than that. Transpersonal psychology is a, is a, well, it's an approach as a philosophy and in my case also a practice where one recognizes that you are more than just an individual. You are because other things are, because other people are. You are defined more by your connections than by you as an entity. And so how you find yourself within society, how you find yourself within the world, within nature, within history, within all the possible dimensions. That is, that is who you are, and that is what defines who you are. Transpersonal psychology also recognizes that we have different domains within ourselves, and so it has room for things like spiritual experiences or peak experiences. It is uh, very well aligned to things like mindfulness or meditation or embodied practices where we are not just in our minds, but also in our hearts and in our bodies as, as complete beings within a complete system of existence in a way. Beautiful. Thank you for that explanation. So if you had to contrast the way that you were trained as a medical doctor and maybe your perspective in the beginning of your career versus now how you view healthcare and medical care and integrating the transpersonal, what's the difference between your perspective back then and your perspective now? Yes, good question. I, I, I think... Sadly, that modern healthcare has become fragmented and it's become very uh, re reductionist. What I mean by that is that it tends to look for a single cause or a single factor in health or in wellness. And so it's become so sterile in a way that we try and melt it down to one thing or perhaps just a handful of things. But we know it's, it's not just one thing, it's so many other things. And in, I think, over-interpreting medicine as a science, we have stripped it of, of the huma humanity, of the healing in, in medicine. And so it's become this sort of, it's become more of a technical thing than it has become a healing thing. And so we, 
we, we miss the human in medicine, which is so strange because it's removed from our, our healing roots. And medicine in, in the past has been, it's been a philosophy, but it's also been, uh, it, it's been central to our humanity. And in, in the past, healthcare practitioners were also the philosophers. Uh, they were also the, the wise people, the shaman type people almost in a community. In modern times, we've sort of stripped it down to a, to, a, to a functional science and we've missed the aspects of, of being that play a role in health and, and well-being and we've, we've tried to take away the depth of the human experience. And, I, and, well, of course, obviously my passion is to try and bring that back. Yeah, so... I would love to hear some stories or examples of patients um, or clients that you've worked with. Um, it could be like a moment in your past where it shifted your perspective where you were like, there's more going on here than just the biological processes. Um, but yeah, tell us a story or two about some some examples where there was more than than just the biological issue happening. Yes. Well, there are plenty of those stories. And, and probably if one listens very carefully, you'll come across many of these stories. It's almost as if we, we sort of know this, but we don't always talk about it. Uh, for example, one, one example that comes to mind was actually a colleague of mine. He was an orthopedic surgeon. The last person you would think that something like this would, would happen to because he was also a, a good scientist, you know, a good technician, a very good specialist orthopedic surgeon, um, who sort of, I suppose, was more focused on the, the science in a way. Um, he, his son sadly passed away. In fact, his son committed suicide, and this was a traumatic experience. And shortly thereafter, this colleague of mine, who was always sort of very cynical about anything, you know, it was sort of, the hoo-hoo stuff, he was always very cynical about that, about the psychological type, type stuff or the spiritual type stuff. But shortly after his son passed away, he started experiencing a weakness in his left hand, which was a problem for him because he was a surgeon. You know, he operates. And the weakness became worse and worse. And in the, the course of a couple of days, he actually was paralyzed on the one side, on his left side. He's... Um, his other colleague said, well, this must be a stroke, you know, and he was admitted to hospital and he had a series of tests and scans, which were all normal, completely normal. And it turns out at the end of the day, and, and this is the realization that he came to himself, was that this, this, this weakness, this paralysis didn't have a physical cause. And it's easy to say this in retrospect, of course, that it was related to the trauma of his son's death. And um, he went through a journey of discovery in, in making peace with that. Only when he did so did this paralysis almost miraculously disappear and he could, he could carry on with his career. But of course, I would, I would love to think that with a new paradigm, with a new understanding, and hopefully he could in a way pay that forward in the way that he was working with his patients. I mean, that's one scenario, Kaz. There, there are many others, of course. Um, I've, I've worked with many adolescents, for example, teenagers, where 
they experience the strangest of symptoms, strange to the medical fraternity. For example, you, you have this phenomenon called psychogenic seizures, where, and it's, it seems to be prevalent in people who have experienced some trauma, especially in childhood, that you have these sort of inexplicable convulsions which don't follow any rule. They're not like typical convulsions. Um, but many others. Uh, I've had patients, for example, that have had these strange gastric symptoms like bloating or heartburn or gastric pain. All the tests are normal. And if you start listening very carefully, you realize that it's, it's likely associated with some psychological or spiritual dimension. I mean, these, are, these are quite radical examples in a way, but I'm sure we all know someone who has had these type of psychosomatic experiences. It might be something very simple, something like eczema, like a skin condition, eczema that you know flares up when you are very anxious or very nervous. Um, or perhaps it's like that chronic headache or that chronic back pain that you have, and you know that it, it flares up when you are triggered in a certain way. It's almost like all of these examples are intuitive. They don't really surprise us, as if we already know this, but somehow we consciously need to recognize that connection. Mm, yes, I've actually struggled with eczema for most of my life. And when it, when it got really bad when I was little, I remember the doctors just saying, oh, well, it's probably stress. Like my parents had just got divorced and I always thought that that like I always thought that a doctor saying it's probably stress or asking about stress was being dismissive. But now, especially after taking your course, I recently went to the doctor still for eczema and the doctor didn't ask about stress. So now when they are not asking about that, I'm like, oh, you're like missing this whole dimension. Um, I would love for you to talk about how something like stress or trauma like how does that work? Like, what's the process in the body that's happening in the brain? Like, how could stress cause a physical manifestation of an illness? Yes. Um, it's actually not that mystical. You know, it sounds very mystical to say, oh, there's this connection between this abstract emotional, spiritual world and the physical body. But in fact, this, the science is there. The, the psychosomatic science is actually very clear. So, of course, let's take stress as an example. We know what happens when you are stressed in the body. We know that certain hormones are uh, secreted in response to stress. Things uh, like adrenaline or epinephrine, it's called in the States. And um, things like your steroid hormones like cortisone and a host of other others. And so we know that the body reacts in that way. We also know that the nervous system reacts to stress. And so the nervous system would stimulate certain parts of the body. Why is this happening? Well, it's because of evolution. It's because as a species, we have developed ways to actually combat stress. When we are in a danger situation, our bodies need to be ready. And so those hormones stimulate, for example, our heart to beat a little faster. It stimulates our, our pupils to enlarge so that we can allow in more light. It primes our muscles it increases our breathing so that there's more oxygen in our blood. Our whole system is geared towards action. That's the stress response, which is fine when, of course, you need to protect yourself against imminent danger. And remember, we developed these reactions 
way, way back, like in thousands of millions of years ago, when we were very vulnerable as a, as a, as a species, you know, when we were being attacked by all sorts of beasts and dinosaurs and who knows what else, we still have those reactions, and those reactions are still very useful to us in modern times. But the mind, our psyches, are not all that good at distinguishing between what is a genuine threat and what is a um, more manageable threat. And so when we experience stress, we, uh, we're late for work, we, um, we forgot something, we um, have performance anxiety, we are worried about something. The mind interprets that as we are being attacked, we are, we are in a, an emergency situation and the body reacts with all those reactions that I've just described. And it doesn't go away. So we have these continual reactivations of that stress response our bodies were actually adapted to have a stress response, recover within minutes after that, and then ah, relax, it's all over, it's okay. But now it seems to be that in modern times, we are continuously stimulated, and so it never ends. We have these stress hormones in our body the whole time, and that becomes our way of being. So our whole neurology and our endocrine system is geared towards that type of response. And so it's almost as if our bodies become hypervigilant, as if we overreact to everything, and it becomes our, our normal, it becomes our baseline. And so there, there are plenty of models, plenty of theories, and a lot of evidence that shows that we're almost in a continuous stress response in our bodies. And that leads to all sorts of biochemical changes in the body, but it also leads to the psychological hypervigilance. Um, and when our bodies are in this chronic stress situation, we are more prone to things like autoimmune diseases. We are more prone to bacterial infections, viral infections, because our immune systems aren't functioning properly. We're more prone to other physical diseases because our, our bodies are sort of being bombarded with all these out-of-context type of responses. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes sense. Thank you for explaining. I, I remember in your class reading about how like animals naturally, like after they have a stress response or, you know, maybe there's a gazelle and it's been chased by like a panther or something. The gazelle then knows it needs to go like lie down, take a break. It, like the parasympathetic system has time to like come on and like calm down the response. But as humans, we have kind of forgotten about that I remember another example was like when ducks have a, a fight immediately afterward the ducks will separate and then like shake their wings almost like shaking out all of like the pent-up tension um what are some ways that like us as humans like what do we need to do to like calm ourselves down and like reduce that stress response yes good question well of course there are many different ways one that I've sort of become very sensitive to is the fact that we need to listen to our bodies. Because I think another thing perhaps that we have developed as a modern society is a disconnect from our bodies. And often our bodies have a wisdom that we don't listen to. So, for example, after we have been triggered 
like and have a stress response, our bodies often want to do something. It's as if sometimes we, we perhaps want to move, perhaps we want to shake a little bit, particularly if it's a, a really sort of um, acute stress. Very often our bodies want to shake, as you've just described, and we want to move, we want to use up, for want of a better word, and to put it very simple, simplistically, we want to, to use up all those hormones that are stimulating us. And, and sometimes we do the opposite. We force ourselves to be inactive. We force ourselves to ignore it, to calm down, to cope. We force ourselves to, to self-regulate, whatever that might mean, as if we're almost afraid of our body's reaction. So I'm, I, I think we need to be more in contact with our bodies and allow our bodies to do whatever it wants to do. Maybe in your case, after a stress reaction, it feels as if you want to do certain movements or, I don't know, perhaps physical exercise or whatever. If our bodies, if we are in tune with our bodies, we listen to our bodies and we do that. It might be different for other people. Other people might feel that their body needs to be quiet, that they need to... Just take a moment, you know, just take a couple of breaths. Um, they need to relax their bodies through some sort of mindfulness or meditation practice or awareness practice. It would be very individual. Uh, it would be different for each person. But I do think that somehow we need to teach ourselves to listen to ourselves more and in particular to listen to our bodies more and not to ignore those parts of us. Because we aren't machines. We are humans after all. Yes, there's some sort of innate wisdom inside us. And if you listen to it, often your body is telling you what to do. So now I'd love to transition and talk about another concept, um, the placebo and then the nocebo effect. So could you briefly describe what is the placebo effect and like, what do you think are some of the important concepts that people should know about it. Mm, yes, one of my favorite topics, the placebo effect. In essence, the placebo effect is when, at least in medical terms, when an inactive substance has an effect. So in, in, a, in a sort of a narrow sense, an example might be when you give someone a sugar pill instead of a, a pill with an active ingredient, in, ingredient or you give them a, a salt water injection instead of a, an injection with an, with an active ingredient. And yet, against science, if you could call it that, against material science, there's still an effect that sugar pill still works or that saline, saline or salt water injection still works. It still has an effect. So a placebo effect is when something has an effect, an outcome, when in theory it shouldn't because it is inactive. It's a, it's a nothing. And yet you still have that reaction. Now, my hypothesis, and it's backed up by plenty of research, in fact, is that the placebo effect is much more prevalent than we give it credit for. We, we miss the fact that many of our so-called interventions, perhaps, whether it be a medical intervention or some other healing modality, a lot of that is not the modality itself. It's not the content of the treatment or the intervention. It's the so-called placebo effect. It's a, it's a form, this is how I see the placebo effect, it's a form of self-healing. It activates certain healing mechanisms, 
many of them biological, some of them perhaps psychological or spiritual, it activates those self-healing effects, does the placebo effect. And so we, we don't need necessarily that active ingredient because our bodies are sort of being activated in anticipation to activate those healing effects that are innate within us. That's the placebo effect. Traditionally, when that effect is positive or labeled as good, it's called the placebo. And when it's bad, the outcome, then we call it the nocebo effect. That's an essence, in a nutshell, what, what it is. Thank you. What do you think are some common misconceptions about the placebo effect? Mm. I think the greatest misconception is that it's a bad thing. And sadly, amongst my colleagues, there's often this dismissive effect. And they would say something very d disdainful, like, oh, you know, it's a placebo effect, it's a nocebo effect, implying that it's not real, that it's imagined. And we should avoid the placebo effect because it's all just, you know, it's hysterics. <laughs> um, that's a misconception because I believe that the placebo effect is, is a tool. It's a beautiful tool. And uh, it's, it's something that can be used to great benefit because if we can learn to enhance the placebo effect, we are in essence enhancing the healing effect. That's a misconception about placebos, that it's a bad thing. And I wish, in fact, we had a better word for placebo, because I, I do think that the word placebo has developed a connotation of being mm, something that we should avoid that is not a good thing. That, to me, is the greatest misconception about placebo. And I know that sometimes the placebo effect can occur even when people know that they're receiving a placebo. So there might be an experiment where it's like, this is a sugar pill, but still there's some reactions. Maybe if someone has pain, there could be like a reduction in, in pain. So it suggests that the power of belief can be strong and it can be kind of subconscious. So could you talk a bit about that? Yes. Isn't that amazing, Kaz? Uh, there's, you're right. I mean, the experience have been in well-controlled experiments that have done exactly that. It's unbelievable. They, it's not, they didn't conceal it. So let's say that they were uh, treating pain or whatever, and they would actually say to the participants in the research study, "Listen, this is this is a sugar pill. There's nothing inside of it. Okay? Um, do you understand this? Yes, we understand this. Are you sure you understand this? There's nothing. I'm going to give you a nothing. Yes, yes." And they give them this nothing pill, and it still works. It still has an effect. So the placebo effect doesn't need to be unconscious in order to work. I mean, that's amazing if you think about it. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? Now, we know from some really good work that has been done and some really good science behind this that there are certain things that promote that placebo effect. For example, if the effect is aligned to a natural mechanism within the body. For example, our body has a natural way of dealing with pain. So we have these endorphins that our brains produce to protect us against the pain. Sometimes they're actually called opoid receptors because they are similar in structure to opoid drugs, right? So we have these natural opoids in our brains and in our systems. And so when it comes to something like pain, 
uh, the placebo effect is very often quite effective. So when, it's, when it augments a process that is already present in the body, natural biological pathways, when it activates those pathways, then we know the placebo effect work, works particularly well. Of course, in conditions where there's, where, or in settings where there's conditioning, conditioning means that it's, it's worked for you before, and so there's almost an expectancy that it will work for you again. Or there might, within your culture or within your society, be an expectation, conditioning that this is effective. Let's say that you live in a community where faith healing is, is accepted as a sort of a, as a paradigm, then it's very likely that you will receive the benefits of a placebo effect for and a spiritual healing session because that's how you've been conditioned. Um, and once again, I'm not judging and I'm not calling it a false effect. I'm just saying that the placebo effect is a very useful modality. Um, and then, of course, we also know that the, that the set and the setting influences placebo. The conditions under which the placebo is administered, for want of a better word, that explains research like, for example, why do certain medical practitioners have more success, better healing rates than others? And it's very often research shows the attitude or the approach or the receptivity of the medical practitioner. And his, his or her colleague might be giving the same physical treatment, but it's as if the the conditions under which they do it, perhaps that they listen to the patients more effectively, Perhaps it's how they deliver the messaging around that treatment. Research has shown that those patients seem to do better than those that just purely receive the treatment without the other benefits. And so all interventions, all treatments, all healing modalities are package deals. It's not just one thing. And those things promote this beautiful and very effective tool that we would call the placebo effect. So I know that there have been experiments done where they have told the person giving the placebo, so let's say it's a doctor, some doctors will know that it's a placebo and some doctors will think it's the real medicine. And so the doctor's belief about the situation affects the outcome. Could you tell me, tell me about that and your thoughts mm. on it? Yes, it's almost like a like a reverse placebo effect, isn't it? <laughs> um, it's um, and and it, I suppose it it touches on on things like um, healing healing things that we do that make us effective healers, and um, and a, and being sensitive to the fact that that everything you do within that healing space plays plays a role. And so if I, as the practitioner, have an appreciation for the placebo effect, it makes me certain, do certain things differently. You know, if I, were, if I, were, if I had an over-reliance on the medicine that I'm prescribing, I would say it doesn't really matter what I do, it doesn't matter what I say, because it's all in the drug that I'm giving. You know, so I can do whatever, and it's still going to work. Um, however, if, if I had an appreciation that there's so much more going on beyond that, then I realized that I have a greater responsibility 
to train myself, but also to make sure that I am in the right space as the, as the practitioner that is beneficial, that healing space that I share with, with, with my patient, with my client. Um, and so I, I believe that our sort of, our, uh, us as healers or us as a healing practitioners, our activation of that suggestive response or that placebo healing response is just as important. It does something, and perhaps it's unconsciously. It activates something in ourselves, and we are different. And that the way that we are different just by that sensitization and that realization makes us somehow better healers, better practitioners. And so the opposite of the placebo effect is called the nocebo. Um, could you tell us um, how that was discovered and then a couple of examples of the nocebo effect in action? Mm. Yes. Um, well, there's many examples. So just a reminder, the nocebo effect is when the, the nothing treatment, the inactive treatment has a, what's labeled or experienced as a negative effect. Here's an example. Uh, let's say side effects of a certain medication. Let's say that I have a patient and I am prescribing them, uh, let's use an example of an antibiotic because I believe that they have a bacterial infection and here I'm prescribing an antibiotic. You know, and what I do is I say to them, well, you know, mm, I'm giving you this, this, this medication. Yeah, you... I, I'm actually not sure if it's going to work, but we, we um, you know, there's, there's, there isn't much else, else I can do. It's probably a viral infection, so the antibiotic is probably not going to work, but I'm just going to play safe, and there's actually not much else that I can give you, so I'm going to prescribe you this antibiotic. But be careful, because the antibiotic might have certain side effects. It might cause diarrhea, it might cause nausea, you know, it might have all sorts of side effects. Um, and so... The messaging that I'm giving is not very positive, is it? It's sort of saying that I, I don't actually have that much trust in what I'm saying to you. Uh, and let's say that that patient has all those side effects that I've just listed, and it's a very negative experience for them. Um, now, I'm not saying we should hide side effects, not at all. I think we should be absolutely transparent about any potential side effect. But once again, it's the way and the context in which we are delivering it. And I think when we are providing this message, even if it's just a subliminal message, that we, we don't really trust this healing process, then it's very likely that the patient is going to experience a noce nocebo effect. They're going to experience the opposite of actually a healing experience. And it might turn out to be a very traumatic experience for them. So that would be an example of, of a nocebo effect. Could you walk us through um, an example of an experiment? It could be for the placebo or the nocebo, like how are researchers trying to test this and see what's going on? Mm. You could do a, a double-blinded study where you could say, well, um, you are giving a medication to some people um, you give something to everyone half of them only only get a an inactive ingredient and half of them get the active ingredient right so half gets the placebo and half gets an active treatment 
the placebo looks like the active treatment. It, it, it has the same appearance. Um, and so there's no physical way of distinguishing between what, what intervention you are getting. And then, of course, you measure the outcome. Let's say that you are measuring pain relief or you are measuring anxiety or you're measuring quality of sleep or whatever the case might be. And then you see whether there's a difference between those two groups. Now, in theory, what should be happening if there were no placebo effect is that the group of people getting the active ingredient would have an outcome, they would have an effect, and the others wouldn't. But what happens in practice is sometimes the opposite. Those getting the so-called non-intervention also have an effect. And that's called the placebo effect, obviously, because they also have a response. They have a biological response. They have a psychological response, even though they receive an inactive substance. So that's quite, you know, and, and that, that's a, a known phenomenon. In fact, it's very interesting. I, I, I work a lot in clinical trials where we test new products. There's almost always a placebo effect. So some participants in the research are randomized. So it's by chance. We, didn't, we don't put them into the different groups. They, it's by chance and not by choice. They end up in the placebo group and they don't even know it. And yet, very often, they also have some form of treatment response. And conventionally in clinical trials, we don't report on that. We sort of ignore that convenient effect, uh, con convenient effect. But if you look at the data from clinical trials very carefully, it actually supports the placebo effect because we see that those that received no treatment often do just as well as patients that received treatment. You could take that research further, Kaz, and you could even look at different factors. You know, you could look at, for example, um, the experience level of the practitioner or the, the amount of time that the practitioner spends with, with his or her patient. Or you can look at the type of question, if they ask questions about your personal background, if they take um, more time in looking at your context, asking about your family relationships or your society relationships, whether that influences your outcome or not. Um, and, and these experiments, by the way, have been done. The literature is there. There's a huge body of, of evidence around this effect. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Thank you. Yeah, I think um, one of the big shifts in my understanding that I had about the placebo and nocebo was realizing that it causes like a physical change in the body, whether that's releasing things in your brain it's like your brain is like a pharmacy of of things and so you can trigger it to release certain pain relieving things or hormone levels can be affected the immune system function can be affected um could you briefly list out some of the physical changes in the body that can happen from placebo or nocebo yes oh i love that i love what you're saying it's almost like we have our own pharmacies uh, which is actually uh, true in more ways than one because many drugs that we prescribe, medications that we prescribe, are actually just artificial forms of chemicals that are already present in our body. Um, so those t some of those reactions, well, 
Um, there's the, the pain relief effect, for example. We have a natural pathway within our bodies to relieve ourselves of pain. Earlier I talked about those natural opioids, for example. We have a natural way of reducing our own anxiety, and so we have neurochemicals in our brain um, that reduce our level of anxiety, that help make us feel better, things like serotonin, but also other, other, other type of hormones. And so those might all be activated by the placebo effect. We have the so-called inflammatory response in our bodies, which help us to, to heal when we have certain insults or injuries to our body. And so that natural healing inflammatory effect would also be activated. We can measure all of those effects, by the way. We can measure hormone levels. We can measure um, the levels of certain neurochemicals. We can measure how our um, nervous systems are activated and how our nerves are activated, sending messages from the body and to the brain. And um, so we have, we have all these healing, natural healing mechanisms that are, are activated by non-physical things, whether it be emotions, whether it be spiritual factors. Um, and it makes sense, doesn't it? Because we are more than just physical beings. What are some of the common things you hear skeptics say about this topic? And what are your responses to that skepticism? Yes, there's lots of that. Uh, a lot of my colleagues would say, "Yeah, but it's you know, it's all in the it's all in the imagination. Let's work with real stuff, you know." And um, but then my response to that would be, "Well, I mean, so what is real? Are you are you denying the fact that we have emotional experiences? Are you denying the fact that we have spiritual experiences? Surely you can't deny the fact that we have a life." that is more than just our physical bodies. And so colleagues that are really sort of invested into the purely biological model, which would say that we are basically really sophisticated biological machines and everything else are just byproducts, accidental byproducts of that biological machinery. Uh, I think those colleagues are actually, they're, they're more in a, of, in a delusion than 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 those that recognize that because they are denying dimensions of our existence, of our being that are, are real, that we all experience every day. So that's the one criti criticism or misconception, I suppose, that I come across quite often is to say, well, you know, we, we are the biology and that's all that we are. So anything else is just imagination, it's abstract stuff, there's nothing we can do about that. No, because that denies all of that, those domains of our existence. Um, you know, and, and the, the other sort of negative arguments that I come across, you know, um, it's uh, arguments that say that it's all, it's all, it's all, um, it's all in the individual. You know, it's, it's, it's all in the individual. And so we can fix the individual and we can work on the individual. If you have a certain disease, we'll work on that disease. We'll work with you and we'll, we'll fix what's wrong in you. Um, without realizing that 
everything else plays a role. The society around you plays a role. Your family plays a role. Your human connections play a role. Your physical environment plays a role. Your belief system plays a role. Your history, maybe there's generational trauma even going back many generations. And so there's a skepticism, I think, in, in our modern reductionist society about the interconnectedness of all things, which is sort of sad because I think we, we lose a lot with that type of argument. Yes. And when you talk about um, the spiritual aspect, what um, what do you mean by that? And could you share a couple examples of how the spiritual aspect might play into someone's health? Yes. Well, through various mechanisms, where there's some really good data, historical data that shows that people that have a spiritual life, a more active spiritual life, actually, well, obviously they, they feel better and they, they tend to function better, but also they tend to be more healthy. They tend to be physically more healthy. Now, of course, there are various explanations for this. Some of the explanations are very pragmatic. For example, people that have a spiritual life tend to have better connections. And so maybe uh, maybe they practice a religion. Not that spirituality is equal to religion, but just as an example. Let's say that you are active in your religion, which means that you are probably in a community. You are in a community of like-minded people, which means you have better human connections. You have a support network, which means that your 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 processing of health is going to be better. We know that when you have support structures in place, um, you tend to do better. So maybe it's that. So maybe it's a sort of an indirect thing. But I happen to believe it's more than that. It's more than just an indirect thing. Um, it's as if our, our psyches are, are built to be spiritual. Um, so it's no accident that we have rituals. It's no accident that we have um, a yearning in a way for something that is beyond ourselves. And, and I do believe that when we explore things beyond ourselves, when, when we have this spirituality, this, and in my mind, spirituality is recognizing an experience that you are more than just this, you are more than just an individual. When you have that yearning, when you have that searching, it's as if something, something clicks in our brains. It's as if our whole psyches have developed over millennia to actually complete the cycle through looking for something beyond yourself. Whether that something is a community, whether that something is an abstract spiritual entity, whether it's just an appreciation of ecology, the world around you, the cosmos, I believe that that activates certain pathways within ourselves which have physical manifestations, amongst other things. That's, that's how I believe how spirituality plays a role. Mm, thank you. That was a beautiful description. So um, I'm really interested in how one can change the minds of others to so someone who's a skeptic and doesn't believe in this stuff. Like in your view, what is an effective pathway to try and get someone's mind set and worldview to start to transform, to be open to these other dimensions of reality and the way the world is working? Mm, the big question, isn't it? Uh, there's a wider question around social activism, I suppose, as well, or human activism. How do we, how do we change 
um, other people's mindsets. There is no easy answer to this, of course. And I think what we should also be careful for is not to come across too strongly or too critical, because in a, in a way we just elicit a sort of a defensive response when we start, perhaps from a good place, but we start accusing people of 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 having a, a narrow mindset. Perhaps the the better way is is providing examples. It's in, it's in how we are, the way that we speak, the way that we act. Um, and so in a, in a case, in a way, allowing others to, in a way, model, not that we are perfect, not, not at all, but in a, in a way that they can see how our minds are starting to work. And in a way, they, a part of them is, is modeling that particular aspect. So that's one way, I think, of, of sort of being who we want other people to be, Right. But also, I think it's, it's education. And I have a huge passion for sensitizing my colleagues in the healthcare environment to some of the issues that we've been talking about today. Um, and I do find that they're actually more open to this paradigm than we give them credit for. It's just that they've never really been exposed to it. So in a way, it's also about exposure. It's also about education. It's about creating opportunities to talk about this. Maybe they wouldn't agree with me. Maybe they would have a, a different view. But if they are never exposed to these type of thinkings, then they'll never be, be given the opportunity to, to perhaps expand their, their practice. And so it's about creating those opportunities. It's about creating those conversations. And it's about allowing them the opportunity to engage with that in their own way, which brings us even wider. It, it brings us to perhaps we should include this in the curriculums of, of healthcare practitioners, whether it be medical practitioners, whether, whether it be nurses, whether it be physiotherapists, whether it be health and wellness coaches at all levels. Perhaps we should be bringing these conversations and some of the science and data that I've been talking about into those curriculums so that the next generation of healthcare practitioners will see the bigger picture. Mm, yes, I love that. So um, what would be your hope for the future of medical care? And, and what are some examples of how integrative medicine, how would that look uh, in the future if you could design the way that the healthcare system runs going forward? Yeah. In some ways, it would look very different. In other ways, it wouldn't look different because I'm not suggesting that um, you know we don't practice allopathic medicine or Western medicine anymore, and we just throw it all out and we all start uh, bringing in the crystals and chanting and all. You know, no, that's not at all what I'm saying to my colleagues. What I'm suggesting to them is that within the existing practices, within the existing ways of doing things, they, they start to do things with, with a little more depth. So from the outside, it might look the same. You're still examining patients. You're still taking medical histories. You, maybe you're still prescribing medication or maybe not, maybe less. But it's the setting, setting. It's everything around that that might be different. It's those human qualities. It's seeing your patient as part of a network, as part of something bigger. 
Perhaps it's the way that you are within that space. The things that you say or how you say those things. Perhaps it's very subtle. Perhaps it's energetic. You know, so you don't even know that you are doing something differently. Um, it's and so it might look the same, but it's it's qualitatively different. Um, my vision is that practitioners they develop that sort of culture within themselves, and they develop that sort of culture within their their healing practice. That to me is is sort of first prize. A second prize might be to say, well, let's let's create opportunities where patients don't fall through the cracks. If this healthcare practitioner can perhaps partner with someone who is more into coaching, for example, health and wellness coaching or transpersonal coaching, then maybe both of them can work on 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 this issue together and and sort of have this team approach where they they help the patient to to see their, their issue, whatever that might be, from various angles. So this multi-team approach, for example. And then ultimately, I suppose, one could try and have these sort of integrated systems where you have these teams where it's not only, you don't only go and see your, your medical practitioner, your, your medical doctor, you at the same time, you are also seen by your alternative healthcare practitioner or someone who does yoga or someone who does spiritual healing if if that's relevant to you where the other professions with the other healing modalities shamanism is another one that we can talk about of course where these other healing modalities have the same um, status in a way that they're all seen part as, as, as the network but ultimately i think you know to be realistic i would start with the low-hanging fruit which is ultimately changing the attitude of the practitioners in the existing system. Mm, yes. Yeah, and I, um, whenever I've been talking to people about these topics, I always say, you know, if I broke a bone or like, heaven forbid, if I was in an accident, I would want Western medicine there to help take care of that traumatic injury. And that's like what med Western medicine thrives in. But other things, you know, like digestive issues or eczema or like all of these other aspects, there could be like so much more going on. So yeah, that deserves like a, a deeper investigation. Um, what are some practices that you would recommend that people do maybe by themselves to start getting more in tune with things that might be going on, you know, below the surface? Mm. I think any somatic practice is important. What is a somatic practice? A somatic practice is when you cultivate an awareness of being in your body. A simple exercise like breathing, for example, has almost a magical quality, you know. Just by becoming aware of your breath, the cycle of your breath, the in-breath and the out-breath, it focuses your awareness on what's happening in your body. Movement exercises, very subtle movement exercises, whether it be... Um, Simple, simple movements. It doesn't even need to be anything intricate or you don't need to follow a certain pattern. Just moving your body. Even you can move your body in the shower or you can move your body between meetings and being aware of, of those movements. This sounds very simplistic, but it's actually pretty important. 
just to be aware of how you are moving, how your body is moving, where your body is in space. Now, of course, you can develop a routine around this, and there's lots of resources that, that you can read about mindfulness exercises around your body. How you can, there's the, the well known body scan technique, for example, that Kabat Zinn, a famous mindfulness teacher, uh, teaches us. Um, where you, for example, scan your body. You um, let your awareness move over different parts of your body just to check in. How is my knee feeling? How is my left arm feeling? How is my neck? Is it, is it stressed? You know, what's happening there? So you can, you can sort of follow that sort of systematic practice, get into the culture of doing that. You, you can get into that breathing practice. You can get into a moving practice. There are all sorts of ways in which you can learn to be in better contact with your physical body. And I would, I would urge your, your listeners to explore that because, you know, there's no one thing that works for every person. There's, there's so much out there. And I would urge you to develop your own practice that makes sense to you and that works for you. Mm. So, Henny, is there anything else that I haven't asked you about that you feel is important to share? I think we've covered a lot. We've covered a lot of ground. Uh, and, and thank you so much for the opportunity. And um, I suppose I would just love to say that, I, you know, I think we all have this healing entities within ourselves. Not only that, but we are also all healers in ourselves. And in small ways, in the ways that you interact with people every day, and the things that we do every day, we all have that healing potential. Because of things like the placebo effect, the small things that we do, the seemingly insignificant things that we do for others or how we interact with others, the way that we are, the intent with which we approach our existence and what we put out there. Who knows? Maybe something small that you do today might lead to a big healing for someone. Mm, wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Henny. You're so wise and I really appreciate you coming on the podcast to share your insights. Um, I know that you offer transpersonal coaching and integrative health consultation. So I'll link your website in the show notes. It's innerheal.co.za. Um, so yeah, thanks again, Henny. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Kaz. Thanks for the opportunity. If you liked what you heard please subscribe to the podcast so you'll get a notification when i launch the next one before i go i would like to give a shout out to zachary walter who composed the gorgeous music that you hear in this episode if you'd like to find out more about him and his musical compositions check out zacharywaltermusic.com